Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I am film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. Welcome. Hard to believe it's already August. The year is just zipping by. Um, I don't know where it's all going other than film festivals, Comic-Con, fun things like that. But we are back for the first Monday in August. We've got a, a fun show today. Uh, the past few weeks, you've been hearing from Mary Lou Henner and Ed Bagley Jr. talking about their film, Imperfections. Well, now we're going to hear from the writer-director. Uh, Imperfections, it's running in limited release in theaters, but it is also available on all of the on-demand platforms. So... As I've said before, it is a sparkling diamond in the rough. It is a little gem of an indie film, and it's a lot of fun. But we're going to hear from David about how a very talented musician he is also scored for on Broadway, uh, as well as being in an alternative band. How you go from doing that to writing and directing a feature film. Uh, that's a journey that I think you're going to find interesting. I know I will. I've heard tidbits of it when we did our red carpet interviews uh, 10 days ago. So David will be joining us at the half hour. Before then, you're going to get to hear my recent, most recent interview with Mark Webb, with director Mark Webb. Earlier in the year, you heard excerpts of our interview for the film Gifted, starring Chris Evans and uh, and an adorable little newcomer. Uh, Mackenzie, and I can't remember Mackenzie's last name right now, so forgive me. Um, so, but uh, you heard uh, plenty of clips earlier in the year about uh, the making of Gifted. Now, his newest film is The Only Living Boy in New York. This film is it's written by Alan Loeb. It was actually written uh, back in 2004. It's taken this long to get the film made. Mark was attached as a director very early on, but because of a couple little films called The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, kind of got in the way of putting everything together to get The Only Living Boy in New York made. In the interim, after he finished the the two Spider-Mans, the ones with Andrew Garfield, he then, everything came together very quickly to get Gifted made, which then pushed Only Living Boy further onto the back burner. Trust me when I tell you that it's been worth the wait because The Only Living Boy in New York is absolutely enchanting. It is charming. It has a little bit of whimsy and quirkiness to it. It's very creatively told. There are wonderful climactic father-son moments. A lot of three hanky moments, too with fathers and sons, and we don't see that too often in films. And much of the credit for that goes to the cast. This cast in The Only Living Boy in New York is impeccable, starting with none other than one of the hottest men out there in the market today, uh, Jeff Bridges. 
That man is still on fire. Uh, he tore up the cinematic screen in Hell or High Water last year. Now he's back in The Only Living Boy in New York. Uh, and I'm not going to reveal the character, but to say he provides a voiceover narrative, more or less is a story being told. Um, he is a writer. Uh, and this is set pretty much in the New York of the 1970s, with a 70s vibe, um, in the very artsy and, and creative time of the era. Jeff Bridges heads the cast, joining him, Pierce Brosnan, as a frustrated writer turned publisher, uh, flawless, elegant, debonair. What can we say about Pierce Brosnan? Kate Beckinsale is the object of Mary, of Pierce's married character, uh, married character's affections, while his character of Ethan is actually married to Cynthia Nixon's character. They have a son named Thomas, who is like most young men in their 20s, trying to figure out where they want to go and what they want to do, and a father who is saying, no, you have to get a job. I've called in a favor with a career counselor. There are things that you must do. You have to get direction and focus in your life. Uh, the initial object of his affection is a young girl named Mimi. But then he meets his father's mistress. And of course, father and son both want Kate Beckinsale's character of Johanna. And it's very interesting. The construct of the story is very interesting. The point of view is maintained through that of Thomas, who's played by the wonderful Callum Turner. You can see he's done Assassin's Creed. I first took notice of him in the indie film The Green Room last year. Um, wonderful, wonderful performance where we really get to see Callum come into maturity on screen, emotionally and physically. Uh, it's a powerful performance, and that is only personified by his work opposite Jeff Bridges for the bulk of the film. So much of this film is Jeff and Callum, and the exchanges are wonderful. They're cerebral. They're enlightening. They're fun. They're engaging. But the entire story all comes together, is wrapped up in a neat little bow at the end, very hopeful, very inspirational. Uh, so I can't wait for all of you to see that. That is coming out this Friday, the 11th, everywhere. And of course, cinematography, Stuart Dryberg reteams with Mark. Uh, he did Gifted with him. The cinematography is beauteous uh, from camera angles, from color. But why don't we just take a listen to my interview with Mark Webb, because Mark and I get into the cinematography. We get into the casting, the locations, and of course with a director who come, has a strong music video background. Great attention is paid to the needle drops and the score itself. So take a listen to my interview, exclusive interview with director Mark Webb talking The Only Living Boy in New York. Hey, hey Mark. How are you doing? Nice Fine. To it's nice to actually get to talk to you in person. Yes, yeah, so we talked on the phone For before. Gifted, gifted yeah. yeah. And once again, oh, Mark, once again. Would you like this? Yeah. I am in love with this film. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm utterly charmed. Oh, amazing. The creativity here in Alan's story, uh -huh. 
but then what you did with it from a visual standpoint, you are such a visualist when it comes to using metaphor to tell a story. And here, between what you and Stuart does... Yeah. And, Who I worked with on Gifted as well. Yeah. What the two of you do here with creating the visuals, mm-hmm. the pockets of life that really capture what New York was back in the 70s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, know. you know, that vibe is gone. Mm-hmm. The vibe that you guys capture here are, are, are those little pockets. Mm-hmm. The Lower East Side, the west, Upper West mm-hmm. Side. And they're the, the, not the usual places we see. Mm-hmm. So you really capture the texture and fabric of the life of each of these characters, which sets up some of the great dynamics mm-hmm. with Thomas battling with, with Ethan. Yeah. And yeah. how he meshes with WF. Yeah, there's a... The, the, like, the movie, what I say about it, like, it, it's, it's not a, a contemporary New York. It is New York that I imagined New York to be before I ever came to New York. You know what I mean? Like, there's a kind of a fabulistic quality to the, to the city, and we tried to take out, you know, we didn't make it... There's not really a lot of cell phones or social media. Right. There is a romantic idea of what this place is, and we took the color palette, and we, re- we really restricted it, so it was like a bunch of neutral colors, which kind of, I think, helps create a kind of aesthetic cohesion. But also, when you walk down the streets of New York, it is kind of... There's a lot of black and very neutral. Yeah, very, very monotone. monotone yeah. You know, like, which is different than Los Angeles, which is like, you know, there's a bombastic mm-hmm. like, bouquet of colors everywhere you go. And and so that was a that was a real specific visual choice to create to help create a more cohesive uh, uh, palette and world. But what you also do when you do use color, and I think the most significant point in the film mm-hmm. is when Thomas is going down the alley and he's silhouetted, and you've got WF sitting on the couch. Uh-huh. In that, with that beautiful, eye-popping, graffitied wall oh, behind yeah. him, uh-huh. and the bright sunlight coming down, yeah. and at that moment, he's really walking into. You look at it, and all you think of, he is finally he's seeing the light. He is yeah, walking into life. Yeah, something more colorful, literally. That I can honestly say the single single most powerful moment in that film. Oh, that little confession there. That little thing. Uh huh. Because we found that in the randomly in the back of that uh, building where we shot the apartments. It was this great little. I mean, those that happens every once in a while. You find you go those little air pockets in the back of, of the tenements. It's just a beautiful little yard there that was left alone, but it was also the it was a, a gallery of of really incredible art. I mean, it's beautiful, yeah. and for that moment in the film, for Thomas's world to open up. It was it, yeah. it was just pure, and I'm thinking, did they set dress that? No, you know, we had to get did, permission from the graffiti artist. Did, did David design this? You know, he found it, um, but uh, but we yeah we had to go hunt down the uh, the graffiti artist to get their permission to put it in the booth, <laughs> which was a chore. I'm sure. Yeah. You know how difficult was it because these are out of the way places that you picked for your locations. Mm-hmm. How hard was it to find them? Well, we wanted to shoot in New York. That was a, just a, a rule that we had for ourselves, and predominantly in Manhattan. We shot a couple scenes in Brooklyn, um, but it was it wasn't that hard. I mean, I live there now, so like I would go walk down a street and find a place. I would oh, this this is the right vibe, and then mm-hmm. and David Groban also lives in in, the, in New York, so 
we all knew the city well enough to kind of identify things that felt right to us. And, and you know, we tried to shoot in the Met for the wedding, but we couldn't get it, so we went to the, the museum for that, which I had scouted for other things before. So it was there. It was a, it was kind of a like when you live in New York and you are you, you used to pay attention to things. Um, it is uh, it reveals itself to you in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you captured all of them. And then, of course, the fact that you and Stuart, you elected, you go for a lot of crane shots, a lot of overhead well, looking yeah. down. Well, yeah, so that was um, the, you know, and Gifted, for example, it was more of a naturalistic mm-hmm. vibe, and that was to kind of try to cut against the sentimental nature of the story uh, and to give it a kind of a realistic vibration, and you're in a, in a, you know, in Florida, and he wanted to feel a little bit more raw. This story again was more of a fable. Like there's a fantastical element to it. So, in terms of the camera work and the visual component of it, I wanted it to feel, um, you know, more elevated. You mm-hmm. know, and we did a couple things. One is we we would shoot through things. We kind of create boxes, and it was a sort of a way to make things more theatrical like the, you're, the, the, you're looking through a proscenium mm-hmm. you know what I mean to elevate or to stylize the world a little bit more um, and, but also those shots that you, you, when you're making a movie and it's told at eye level tend, things tend to feel a little bit more realistic mm-hmm. and this again I wanted just I wanted there to be a a, a pleasure to the visuals and a mm-hmm. style to the visuals that uh, that spoke to a kind of fantastical quality mm-hmm. of the story. Well, if it helps you, I put whimsical moments. Uh-huh. I love it. Yes. So, you know, that really comes through. And of uh-huh. course, you set the tone with the opening titles. The book is being illustrated as you have yeah. Jeff Bridges doing the voiceover, yeah. starting to narrate uh-huh. what becomes this story. Yeah, yeah. So you start out with that charm and whimsy, and then you carry it through with the polished fantastical. Yeah. Through the film, yeah, and once again, you shot on thirty-five. Yep, and I'm working for thirty-five millimeter film. Yeah, what is it that keeps you shooting on thirty-five? Because, well, I think for TV, digital is really can be really mm-hmm. fantastic, and in some on some networks, it's a requirement. But film, when you are dealing with highlights, it it tends to react to sunlight and backlight. In a in a more rich, rich way, I also think I just have a nostalgic connection to it. You know, it's how I started off making making stuff is always shooting on film, and there's a sacred quality to when the camera goes on. You know, and, and everybody's alert. Everybody was surprised that we were shooting on film, but when you when you say action, it puts an extra kind of pressure on the on the actors and a, and, a, and a focus which I really enjoy and I think mm-hmm. it does have an impact on the performance yeah because I know some of the actors that I talk, talk to and I'll ask them how do they like especially veteran actors mm-hmm. like Pierce yeah uh, you know who started in film mm-hmm. and with the transition mm-hmm. Sam Elliott's another one that all yeah. of a sudden he'd never done anything but film yeah. and he said it's like a whole new world and he, actors that are used to shooting digitally yeah they figure, well, if we don't get it in the first take, you know, we can do it again, we can do it again. Yeah. And that mindset is there. Like, you want people sharp. Uh-huh. And you don't want to, just because you can do it 50 times, yeah. doesn't mean it's not costing money. Yeah. And digital, but digital, I think, would be good for 
and has been exploited in a positive way for comedy, like for improvisational yeah. comedy and like getting people into the, and that's really great. And that, but that's not really what we were doing here. Right. You know, it was highly rehearsed um, and uh, carefully constructed scenes, you know, and, and that's, and, and everybody, I mean, Jeff is such a pro, like he dials in very, very quickly and everybody kind of, and Pierce as well, like these guys are just, you know, the most consummate professional. Yeah, you know, it's just for me to see the progression yeah. of the industry and the progression of these actors who are still around. Yeah, Pierce is just, what an, oh. what an icon and what a gentle, gentle soul. Oh, truly. But, you know, then you get, I'm watching Jeff Bridges and all I could think of is the dude meets Hemingway meets J.D. Salinger. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, he really embraced that. And like he, you know, he paid attention to every detail of that character. And he, he I think he looked at some Bukowski stuff and that informed a little bit of his speech patterns and, and you know, how he did his hair was kind of like Sam Beckett. And like, you know, he had a, he really dove into that world and the references around it. And it was pretty fun to, to, to get to experience that with him. Now you've been attached to this project for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I for several years, but I was doing Spider Man when I, when it came about, and I was like, it would be so much fun to do a little movie. And I thought maybe I could do it between the first and the second Spider Man, but you know, we just rolled from one to the other, so it had to go on the back burner. And then Gift came together a little bit more quickly, uh, and I had an optional picture to do at Fox. So this kind of was sitting there. Unfortunately, the the stars aligned, and, and literally the stars aligned. And Pierce and Jeff <laughs> and Kate all came aboard, and Cynthia, and it just ended up working mm-hmm. and of course then you get a find like Callum yeah yeah uh, I mean I saw him in the green in the green room oh yeah great that play the lead singer yeah I saw him in there but to see what he does here and what you bring out of him mm-hmm. we actually see him mature on screen as the film progresses yeah he's a he's sort of got a national masculinity which is kind of hard to find it's just a, there's a window in, in a young actor's um, uh, career and a, a, that that this role works where he where, where this can work where he's you know he can be put on his heels by someone like Kiersey or Mimi you know but then in the next minute um, you're still rooting for him to get with someone like Kate and, and that is a it's a tricky uh, Venn diagram to find the overlap mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, fortunately, we found him. I mean, it's, if they're too boyish, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. But if they're if they're just all, if it's Jason Statham, you know, you don't, the first part of it doesn't work. You know what I mean? So you need to find that intermediate phase. And Callum is a, a supple enough actor to, to be able to kind of occupy both those spaces. Well, and what's so great is that in his performance, there he starts out very insecure, very boyish, very lost. Mm-hmm. But we see that emotional and physical progression. Mm-hmm. So that by the time you see him in bed with Kate, mm-hmm. you got the can you and Stuart, you got the camera set, so he's looking kind of buff, yeah. and it's like, okay, this is not the same kid that we were watching mooning over Mimi. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's that scene where he's uh, talking to her in um, in the wedding, where he's mm-hmm. kind of confronting her. That 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 is a he is getting in touch with his anger there. And he's becoming a little... That, that is like the begin. He's a different person at the beginning of that speech mm-hmm. than he is at the end of that speech. Yeah. You know, what was it like working with Amazon on this one? So great. Relatively it, new. Yeah. New formatting, new style, new approach. 
Yes, but Ted Hope is an old school independent producer from New York. So it's very, he's collaborative in a wonder, wonderful way, but very protective. They were the easiest people I've dealt with in terms of the studio environment. And, and, you know, I would, I mean, they, they were just great. They're fantastic, thoughtful, uh, but incredibly supportive. And they, I think they know that there's a space for these little movies uh, that, they don't have to necessarily have to perform that well in the box office, but they they have a a life on. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people are enjoying these movies more and more in their homes, and I think that is uh, really helpful for something like this. I mean, I guarantee you, this is the kind of film that if it is on cable, uh-huh. I mean, I'll definitely buy it on Blu-ray when it comes out because <laughs> I want it. Yeah. But this is a kind of film that if it is on cable. And I'm flipping channels, and yeah. I would see this. I yeah. would stop and watch it every yeah. time. Oh, great! It's great. that. I mean, there is that much in this film that makes it so enjoyable. Every character is just as interesting as the next. Yeah. And the dynamic that interweaves amongst all of them. Yeah. Is so beautifully done. Oh, great! Wow, thank you. You That's... tie everything up. We have no loose ends. Mm-hmm. The film ends on such a hopeful, upbeat, happy note. Yeah. All the way around. Yeah. yeah. That was, I mean, I left the theater smiling. Great. When I saw it. Yeah. We don't see enough films that have this golden age of Hollywood happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, hopefully it's a little bit complicated, but I think that, that and it, it, but yeah. I mean, it was complicated was, getting there, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a price to pay for that, I suppose, but... Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah, it is. It is a. It's a little bit more of an old school movie, isn't it? Very in much that so. Sense. Like, uh, I think again, I keep on thinking about that word fable. That's how we approached it, certainly. Yeah, and it, it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah, but you know something that you do exceedingly well. You did this in Five Hundred Days of Summer, and I know this is because of your music video background. <laughs> The music here is, oh my God, Mark. Yeah. I thought I was in love with what Oren Moverman did with his soundtrack mm-hmm. with The Dinner. Mm-hmm. I now have to tell mm-hmm. Oren, <laughs> I like this one better. I think, well, there's the, the fun. There's a fun part of it where you just, uh, there's a few elements. Well, the score, which Rob Simonson, my favorite thing that Rob did was, was in the, during that speech. Originally, we, we tempt that. We tried to find music, but I, I couldn't, make any the songs didn't work because the vocals competed with what, what mm-hmm. the guy was saying and I tempt in Yumeji's theme from In the Mood for Love to like give it that kind of the, yeah. it was a waltz it was a three four time thing but then we tried to compose something like that and it never worked so then Rob was like let's do a tango which gave it a mystery but also a sexiness which mm-hmm. I think really ended up working yeah. well for that section and Rob was I think did a, it's one of my favorite scores he's ever done and I've worked with him a lot but then there's the the actual needle drops and it was so much fun to work with you know Mingus and Simon and Garfunkel obviously Blues Run the Game and Only Living Boy in New York Dylan but also Brubeck and you know the Paloma Azul like that sort of lazy mm-hmm. mid-century jazz feel yeah. I just it was so much fun to play around with those that palette which is different, way different than five, the pop music 500 Days of Summer or even the Spider-Man movies or the southern twang of mm-hmm. of gifted, gifted it was yeah. it was trying to uh, identify the texture through the music. How hard was it to find the specific needle drops that you used? And then it wasn't, to get I the never thought about it as hard 
it was really fun and you know Randall Poster who's our music supervisor was a really it was really instrumental in that um, but a lot of it I had just over the course of the years I would listen to think about sequences and, and just oh this song will work there or let me try this or let me try this also the actors like Jeff when we were doing that scene in the apartment with Jeff and um, and Callum uh, he's he brought in his own soundtrack and that that's a Bill Evans piece uh, called Peace Piece which is just this beautiful very simple uh, piece of music that uh, Jeff actually taught me how to play on the piano he's a total musician too oh, so it's like that was how he viewed this scene and this character and I loved incorporating that kind of uh, that element in the movie you know it was really fun. It's a great way to connect with your actors. It's so beautiful with the music is you have something that is reflective of each one of your main characters, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mimi has a kind of a new attitude. Johanna has Visions of Johanna. I mean, the movie really could be called <laughs> Visions of Johanna, but it's like Johanna's vision of how the world works. Like, she's such a catalyst for how things move yeah. forward. You know, that that kind of beat poetry thing, that backbeat jazz quality I think really fits well with Jeff and of course the I mean that Dylan feels very mm-hmm. much like him but yeah they, they all had a different they all had kind of this attitude and I mean the movie is told from the perspective of Thomas mm-hmm. primarily even though it feels a little bit like an ensemble it really is told from his perspective so the, there is a gimlet eyed view of New York that he embraces that I think the music supports mm-hmm. so, you know, the tension of that you know how much rehearsal time because you mentioned rehearsal and I know that Cynthia has mentioned in the past about it was a luxury for her to have rehearsal time mm-hmm. because on a lot of these indie films you don't get yeah, rehearsal we, time Cynthia came on very late in the game and so we didn't get to rehearse with her very much but we had about a week or ten days worth of rehearsals with Jeff and what was fun with Jeff was we went to the actual locations and went to the rooms mm-hmm. uh, where we, where we would we were going to shoot stuff and like gave him the props and so there was a lot of time for him to marinate mm-hmm. and and that I think had a huge impact on him. I mean that's that's what he likes to do and I, yeah. I love it when actors like to yeah. rehearse and he was so collaborative but also respectful it, it, he became a wonderful partner I mean yeah. I, I wish we could always have that much time to spend how exciting is it for you as a director because after Jeff and Heller uh, or High Water last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. He is on such a high mm-hmm. with the public, and yeah. I know people are chomping at the bit uh-huh. for this film. Is this really, you mentioned the stars aligning. Yeah. Is this another aspect of the stars aligning that may help put Literally, this the film? Literally, the stars aligned, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, the 11th commandment should be, thou shalt make a movie with Jeff Bridges. Because <laughs> uh, it's just a wonderful experience and I'm so lucky I didn't think he I just assumed he was going to pass but he liked the script it was a wonderful surprise total surprise but it was like I I, as soon as I heard he was interested I I did everything in my power to like make everything work did he do one of his picture books for you I haven't seen the picture book yet but he did it I don't know I mean he had his camera so he was always shooting. He does it with every film he's really? in. Oh, I can't wait to see it. He takes movie. pictures. I actually have a couple of the books that he actually really? autographed ones that he did at a couple press days. Oh, cool. Uh, probably about, oh, eight, nine years ago. 
But yeah, he takes the pictures and then puts them together for the cast and crew, and maybe for some press. So, I, I mean, God, I would kill to see the pictures in, for this film. Yeah, They've I mean, he was taking, he was definitely taking pictures. There's no doubt about it. But I have not seen it. So now, now you've got the two smaller films mm-hmm. back to back. Mm-hmm. You're going to keep doing these these gorgeous little gems, or are you going to go back into into I, the bigger I, blockbuster? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think I'd like to. It just depends on the story. Like I, I like making big movies, I like making small movies. I don't have to think about it in those terms. It's just like what <clears throat> I think. I want to be very careful about the scripts and and really understanding the pathway to success mm-hmm. for the movie. And like, and I think it takes. Time. I want to. I'm much more comfortable now making movies slowly and spending time to get things right and the script right. And I think I, I have. Um, I'm a little. It's, I have a little less sense of urgency now than I did when I was 33 and trying to get a, a movie made. You know, <laughs> so and so in that sense, that's really the important component to me, not whether it's big or small. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Mark. Oh, I, thank you. I am so in love with this film. I love thank Gifted. You. Thank you. And now, to, and 500 Days of Summer when that came out. Yeah. Thanks. That was. Those are really fun movies to make. I yeah. got really lucky with those. But this one, it it just it just swept me off my feet with its charm. Oh, thank you. That's great to hear. I'm really really happy. Yeah, that I, you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope I hope people like it. We'll see. You never know. Well, one thing that I do know is that the only living boy in New York comes out. Are we on, Pam? Okay. <laughs> Uh, the Only Living Boy in New York comes out this Friday, August the 11th. It is a timeless moment of in the heartbeat of life, a perfect marriage of visual and emotional tonal bandwidth, and outstanding performances. Go see it. And now, let me bring on, is this the perfectly wonderful David Singer ready to talk about imperfections? Uh, is that, I am. I, if you're talking about me, I am here and I'm ready. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? It is so good to talk to you. I'm doing great. So, I ha- first thing I Likewise. have to first thing I have to ask you: How did the premiere of the Lemley Monica go after the it red went carpet? Fantastically well. I'm pleased to report. Yes, they had to uh, had to move us into the bigger theater, which is always a bonus. Oh. Uh, we had a nice crowd and uh despite you know what we've heard about jaded la audiences they seem to really be into it and uh they laughed in the right places and gasped in the right places and it was uh it was generally a big hit so we feel really good about it oh well i'm you telling me you had to get moved into the bigger theater i'm excited about that (laughs) yeah me too it's not often that I that I have seen that happen over the past twenty nine years as a critic, <laughs> where you know well, the, the film's premiering and they got to move you to a bigger theater. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, we are, you know, we are competing with some Hollywood blockbusters with marketing budgets that dwarf the budget of our whole movie. So uh, the fact that people are excited about what we've done and like the movie is a it's a big thrill for us. We're mm-hmm. just we're happy to have it out in the world now. Well, and it's also, as I found as I was perusing through Spectrum's On Demand, I always like to see, look and see what's actually hit uh, On Demand. And there was imperfections. 
So, there it is. Yeah, there it it's, is. Uh, it's made its way. It's on iTunes and Amazon and Comcast and Spectrum and DirecTV and Google Play and. I assume they'll beam it directly to your refrigerator or your watch. Basically, any way you want to watch our movie, we will make it happen for you. All right. Well, now, now you've challenged me. I have to come up with a way that I want it. That I want to see it. That's fine. Let me know if you needed if you needed beams to a sailboat in the middle of the Indian Ocean. <laughs> I will make it happen for you. Okay. Well, the first thing you have to do is come up with the money to get me to the sailboat in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Consider it done. The check is on the way. Oh, just like all the checks for investors into a film. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I this everybody all of all of our behind the lens listeners have been hearing about imperfections for a number of weeks now, thanks to Mary Lou doing the show, Ed doing the show, uh, and now but now they get to hear from the man who created this. Uh, Mary Lou and Ed have just given you so many wonderful platitudes about the script which excited both of them. And uh, considering Ed's now been in this industry 50 years, Mary Lou isn't too far behind. Uh, the fact that they were attracted to this script and out of the plethora of things that they have seen come across their desks over the decades, how does that make you feel as a writer-director? I mean, I'm, it makes me feel so grateful there are, you know, there are people who I admire so much and who I'm now lucky enough to call friends. You know, they're not, they're people with long and storied careers who certainly don't sign on to a project like mine for the money. They sign on because hopefully they recognize that I tried to write real three-dimensional characters, which, frankly, a lot of grown-up people don't get to play. Certainly a lot of adult women don't get to play. Mm -hmm. And so... I like. I think that they both responded to the fact that I gave them something to do, that they weren't the, just the comic foil or you know the goofy uncle, that they actually had stuff they could sink their teeth into. And I think it really shows two performers who people have long loved have a lot of gas left in the tank, that they, that they turn in performances in this movie that I think they should be very proud of, and I think they are. Oh, absolutely. And I've got to say, I have not been so entertained by a performance of Ed's. Granted, we've seen him pop up Ghostbusters and all kinds of things. But he, as you mentioned, he's there for comic relief to be a foil. Here, he is very much in the thick of this entire plot line. Yeah, I mean, I've always found that the thing about Ed's acting that works is that he has just a depth of sincerity mm -hmm. in everything he does. He's not one of those performers who acts like they're in on the joke. He commits fully to the parts that he inhabits, and that's what makes him so funny. And I had always suspected that if he brought that same thing to bear on a part that was a little more serious, that he could really knock it out of the park. And I feel like he did. I think he shows vulnerability and depth that uh, that I'm not sure that people associate with Ed, but I think they definitely should, and I hope that they do going forward. Well, and of course, you you script this, so there's this incredible plot twist that, I mean, I'm talking, it is one of the best plot twists I've seen in a long time. Wow. And Ed is very much, his character of Barry is very much a part of that, involving his, you know, his diamond, his diamonds, his jewelry store. 
And to watch right. Ed from, uh, you know, the emotion and the spin and the nuance that he puts into this, it, it, you forget, the, as you mentioned, the depth that Ed Bagley Jr. has until you see yeah, this I mean, and you go, is, wow. In addition to being just like a lovely person, and someone who's worthy of admiration just in terms of how he lives his life and his commitment to his ethics. Mm-hmm. He is a just a really skilled performer. You know, he's been around, I think he told me his first job ever was on My Three Sons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's got a pretty serious history, and he brings it all to bear in this part, and we just couldn't be uh, more grateful or feel luckier that we had him in our movie. Well, it's still one of my favorite roles that he's done is Protocol with Goldie Hawn, which is hysterical. <laughs> I don't know that one. I'm going to have to go look oh, that one up. You of all people, after, now having worked with Ed, you find that movie. It's on, it's on uh, DVD. Um, and another okay. performance that he gives where he plays two sides of the coin, She-Devil with Roseanne and Meryl Streep. Oh, sure. Yeah, that one, of course, I'm familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, Ed can do it all. He really can. And he's a drummer, too. You know, he's got a musical background. He's a little bit, he's got a little bit of everything. So how fun was that for you, for Ed to have a musical background? Because what a lot of people may not know about you is you are very, very musical. I mean, you have scored for August Osage County and of Mice and Men on Broadway. You've got David Singer and the Sweet Science. You've got albums. You were a pro previously a front man to the alternative rock uh, group, Kid Million. Come on, David. You know, you're Yeah, whole- that's been my, my whole life. You know, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been writing songs and writing music for movies and plays and toothpaste commercials for my whole life. And I, a few years ago, I decided to rededicate myself to film. I had been in film school and left when I got a record deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I went. There's a thing that I always wanted to do, and so I went back and with my brother John, I made a short film called Advantage Weinberg a few years ago, and uh, it was really fun and it did very well. And then we decided to come back to Chicago and make our first feature. So this film has been long gestating for me, but the music thing has been my whole adult life. So when it came time to score this movie. Uh, it was uh, it was really fun for me to sink my teeth into it. I was like, okay, this part I actually know how to do. <laughs> so I could sit down and really, like, you know, wrestle those pieces into submission. And uh, I loved every minute of it. Well, don't sell yourself short on the filmmaking, because what people may not know is your Advantage Weinberg short. That, you went to Cannes with that in 2013. That's right. Uh, so we, I had never directed a film before i mean i had delusions of grandeur but that was my first one and it was a movie we shot in four days in chicago and uh i my brother john produced it and i wrote it and directed it and my little brother luke uh, edited it so it was a family affair and then i did the music for it and we're like oh let's put it out into the world and see what happens and fortunately we had a really strong response and people really seemed to like it and uh, I have a feature-length version of that story that someday I'm going to get to make, too. So <laughs> that's still out there for me. Well, you know, now you did your, you set your short in Chicago, and you've set imperfections in Chicago. And I think that's one of the—that's a really fabulous element 
of this film because so often we're so used to seeing the same locations, the same locations. Um, you know, I just I just uh, played my exclusive interview with Mark Webb, who has the Only Living Boy in New York that comes out Friday, and Mark shot in New York, but went to these places and locations you never see, you don't even know exist. You have done much the same thing with imperfections by selecting architecture and locations that people don't traditionally use for television and film shoots. Well, I, I like to think that we, we, we brought to bear on it the, uh, the eye of people who actually are from here. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to show people is not the, you know, all due respect to Ferris Bueller, which is one <laughs> of the great Chicago movies ever made, but I didn't want the postcard version of Chicago. Right. I wanted the L-Track and the dive bars and the bowling alleys and the Chicago that real Chicagoans recognize day in and day out. And uh, it, I take a lot of pride in the fact that people have responded to that so far, that Chicagoans say they really see their Chicago in it, which is, uh, which is you don't see very often. The only, in my opinion, the only real Chicago movie ever made was the Blues Brothers. Outside of that, though, they, they, they're tourist movies. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm happy to just add mine to the list. Well, and something else that you add that, if for, my, for my recollections, um, but for possibly Breakfast at Tiffany's being shot in Tiffany's, um, you actually shot in a working jewelry store, diamond store, <laughs> in Jewelers Row. That's very true. You know, how legit... I mean, for a... Com- I was- I, I'm going to say for a community that's known to be very sort of secretive and cloistered, they couldn't have been more open to us. When we told them we wanted to make this movie set in their world, so many of these companies and people opened their businesses up to us and told us how the business works. There's, you can't make a movie like this and fake it. You have mm-hmm. to show the real world the way it is down there. And they were extremely helpful. In particular, a guy named Peter Malnikoff, whose store, Malnikoff & Sons, we shot the whole movie in. And when we were looking for locations, we, we walked into the place and said, oh, my God, this is it. It's exactly right the way it is. And he was very friendly and obviously recognized what we were trying to do and said, yeah, of course, you can use the place and I'll just clean it up. And we were like, don't touch anything. <laughs> so we, we could never afford to build a set that looks like this. Leave the dust on the, on the video screen. Leave the papers on your desk. Just let us shoot it the way it is. And he did. And that's what that place looks like. So okay, hopefully but- someday there'll be, a, there'll be Chicago film tours that bring people by Peter Malnikoff's jewelry store. In well, the Mahler's building. Well, you know, I, now I have to wonder here, when you said leave everything as it is, did that mean all the jewelry and the diamonds got left out too? Yes, <laughs> for the most part. There are some that are fake and some that are real, and I won't say which, but I will say this, that there's one close-up in the movie of a diamond that takes, sort of fills up the whole screen. Mm-hmm. And... That is a real five-carat flawless diamond that was worth about $180,000. Wow. This jewelry store let us come in with our little rinky-dink camera crew, and they were very casual about it. And I was like, they, you know, the, uh, this is, it's no big deal to them. But for us, we were on pins and needles the whole time. But my thought was that if I showed one really beautiful diamond close up that I could get away with some fakes in some other places. Uh, yeah, and that diamond is absolutely stunning. stunning. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? 
I mean, just looking at it on screen, I've got a figure that's probably a VVS, VVS one, or a fine high and fine high white color. Um, oh, it, look at you! I'm a, I look at you. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. I know my gems. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but now, did that pose an insurance issue for you? This is something that filmmakers don't often think about: is the liability, the insurance issues inherent not only to the productions in terms of workers' comp injuries, insurance for talent when you have big name talent, but insurance when you're going onto other premises or you know, if you have high-quality diamonds in your own house, you've got to get a rider on your insurance policy to cover them. Sure. Did this was this any kind of uh, consideration that you had to worry about? Well, we made sure that we had good insurance and that it was fully paid up and ready to go. But when we shot the really expensive stuff like that diamond, we did so on the premises of a well-secured diamond facility. Mm. They didn't let me take it home for the weekend or anything. So, no. Uh, we, we we skated by okay. Wow. You know, what is it for you having, you know, jumped from music and producing music and scoring music, going into the film world, what kind of differences do you see in terms of especially creative control? Have you encountered well, anything like that? I have encountered some of it, but part of the reason that my brother and I came back to Chicago to make our own movie after the success of Advantage Weinberg is because we didn't want to relinquish control. Mm-hmm. And the way that that works is, you know, as soon as you start taking other people's money, you have to take their opinions along with it, too. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I would rather deal from a position of strength and make a movie that I wanted to make and be responsible for its successes and its failures, and at least it would be mine. So in this case, our creative control was essentially absolute. There was nobody looking over my shoulder while I was directing, telling me what to do. There's nobody in the editing room telling me what I could and couldn't add. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't put a price on that. You know, there is a, we were very lucky to set up a situation where we had total artistic freedom. Mm-hmm. And as we go forward, that's going to be a thing that I'm going to be very reluctant to give away. So, you know, I am fortunate in that I'm a grown-up, and (laughs) I have reasonable expectations about what I can pull off and what I can't pull off, but there's also certain things that I won't give up for some fantastical idea of what success means. So Mm -hmm. my plan is to keep making the kind of movies that I want to make in the way that I want to make them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there really is no other substitute. Absolutely. I mean, talk to me about bringing in your cinematographer, Drew Wenda, because Drew's work, you uh, you take a look at your different locations and the different tonal, visual tonal bandwidth and the resulting emotion that pops. You've got Mary Lou Henner's character, you have Val's apartment, which an apartment like that here in Los Angeles would easily be, you know, over a million dollars. Uh well, I'll say this. That apartment was, when I wrote the script, I knew I wanted her to live in that building. Because that was a building that I went to a bunch of grade school birthday parties in. And it's sort of on the edge of downtown, and it's nice, but it's not too nice. And I knew exactly what building it was. And so when it came time to look for it, we had the option of eight different apartments in that building and looked at them all. So that's what, that's what shooting a movie in your hometown does. It gives you some shorthand on what you're looking for. Uh. But let's go back to Drew. So Drew Wade is 
an incredibly gifted cinematographer who has gotten a lot of accolades on some short films and some documentary films that he had done. But this was his first feature, too. Mm -hmm. And he and I just developed a really great shorthand about what I wanted, what he was able to deliver, which, frankly, was often a lot more than I had any right to ask for. And beyond that, he has, we all have this crew of people who are like-minded, who are willing to dig in and do the work to make something that we could all be proud of. You know, on a major studio production, uh, you probably shoot two pages a day, if you're lucky, maybe two and a half. Because we had to shoot a whole feature in 18 days, we were shooting eight or nine pages a day, often at three or four different locations. So... There wasn't a lot of time to try stuff and see what worked. It had to be a surgical strike unit for this is how we're going to cover it and this is how we're going to do it. And Drew and I did spend a lot of time in pre-production talking about approach and about the color palette of each place and about the style and the lighting that we were going for. And uh, frankly, he's so good at his job, it freed me up to just concentrate on the stuff that I know something about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll be forever grateful to him. He is now shooting uh, a couple other features he's already shot this year. and uh, But I'm sure that when it comes time to make another movie for me, that he's going to be my first call. Well, and I have to say... Um you mentioned, you know, what he's what he's bringing and, and the looks he's creating. I love how the two of you maintained, be it in Val's apartment or the department store where she works at the perfume counter. You maintain the glass windows. Everything is visible. Everything is see-through. Lighting is open. It's bright. And there's color. There's color in the apartment. There's color there at the perfume counter in the department store. You really create this cohesive look for everything that pertains to Mary Lou Henner's character of Val. Similarly, you do the same thing. Thank you thing. for noticing that. That, that. We certainly tried. It's nice to hear somebody notice. I love that. And then, of course, you look at you know, Ed's character of Barry. You look at the jewelry store. You look at his wardrobe, which is as monochromatic and you know, falls into the woodwork of the store a little disheveled, a little unkempt, but very muted, letting your diamonds and the jewelry be the standout and pop. And along that line, when we see Barry's son, Alex, played by Ashton Holmes, similarly, with with the wardrobe for Ashton's character, same thing. You're, You're sticking with that same color palette so that wherever they're appearing, you know, you have that, that, cohesiveness going on there and to distinguish it from the vibrancy of Val, the off-time confusion of her daughter Cassidy, <laughs> who is really the one the one eye popper within the film that stands out along with the idea of the diamonds, be it from her fur jackets, from mini skirts, from you know, from whatever. Um, you, re- you really put a that's lot... That's very astute. Thank you for noticing that. Uh, lots of credit is due to our costume designer, Lana McAllister. And, you know, that's when you're making a movie like ours on a budget, that what you have, in, what you lack in money, you can make up for in planning. Mm-hmm. And the, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out who these people are and what were the things that we could do to help tell their story along the way. And part of it for Cassidy is Cassidy's at a weird crossroads in her life. 
that she's not only not sure where she's going, but I think she's not exactly sure who she is. Mm -hmm. And that's part of it, too. And Val says of her at one point, you know, I think she doesn't know what else to do. That sometimes you get in these places in your life where the most powerful force is inertia. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's part of where Cassidy is. And we tried to reflect that in the wardrobe. We wanted to make her look cool and interesting, but at the same time reflect that she was a lot of different people at the same time. Mm -hmm. She was both demure and sexy, and she mixes a bunch of different patterns to create this crazy, unique look. And I think that there are things that Lana did that really add a lot to who that character turned out to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the attention to detail that you give this film, David, I was very, very, and still am very impressed with. Um, you overlooked, very meticulous, you you missed nothing in your thought process of planning this film out. And, you know, to be, for your first feature film, that really just, I don't see such meticulous attention to detail from a lot of first-time feature filmmakers. Well, thank you very much. I hope that, that belies the fact that I spent the whole time panicked that I wasn't going to be able to sell the whole story. But I'm glad to. But I feel like that part I pulled off, and that you notice the the countless hours we spent figuring out the tiny details is very gratifying. I appreciate well, so. you know, it pays off in the end and in the product. And of course, you mentioned selling it. Well, let's talk about the actual selling of this. You ended up with Andreas at level thirty three. That's correct. How uh, was it hard? A great to... partner for us. They see we found somebody who sees in our movie what we see in it, mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted somebody scrappy like us, somebody who's going to go out there and bring it out to the world. So, the fact that we got a theatrical release around the country is sort of nuts for a movie like ours to get that is almost unheard of. And then now it's making its way around the world it's available on iTunes and Amazon and every other thing as we discussed and uh and soon it'll be available all in other countries around the world too and for our first feature to have gotten this wide a release yeah. is uh a great stroke of luck and a level 33 is due a lot of credit for that oh andreas is wonderful i have, i think he is a fabulous distributor he's very discriminating in the films that he takes but the films that he takes, he pushes full bore and goes for national yeah, that, releases. He doesn't want to that's, sell somebody that's been short. Our experience so far. Yeah, uh, yeah. So often, some of the distributors, and it's fantastic that they're willing to give these small gems, you know, a shot and get them a theatrical release. But typically, it's just for a week in L.A. or a week in New York, and then you go right to VOD and and or DVD, Blu-ray. Right. But the thea- there's nothing like a theatrical experience. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, we were very lucky. You know, I got to go see the movie in L.A., and I've seen it in Chicago a few times now, and uh, I never get tired of seeing it on a big screen. And not just because of the size of the picture, because there's something unique about the shared experience of going through it with a lot of other people and the thrill that we get when everybody gasps and they're supposed to gasp is, uh, is unlike anything else. And, so, you know, for any, I, anyone... I hope, that, uh, I hope to see it in the theater a bunch more times over the next few months. Well, I can honestly tell people when you talk about a gasp, anyone who hasn't seen the film, see it. Get to a theater, go get on your, you know, get online, 
go on demand, do something, because there is a point in the film that sitting in, I don't care if you're sitting in the living room, if you're sitting on a bus watching the movie on your, on your iPhone, you will gasp. Because the twist well, in here is so gasworthy. <laughs> I hope so. That, that, that's, all, that's, that's all we can try to do. You know, I have a lot of highfalutin ideas about what the movie is about. But at, at its base level, the most important thing is that it function as entertainment. And it's been great to hear how much people have liked the movie. They've been so generous with their response and reaching out to us on Twitter and letting us know how they feel about it. And uh, it's been a gas. It's been a real, it's been really fun so far. <laughs> and of course, you know, I would be remiss not to mention, you know, a fan favorite of people. You got Zach McGowan from black sales and agent of shield. Yes, we sure did. And uh, he has an enthusiastic following. Would you say? <laughs> I, I, has, that could be an understatement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is a, he's a really, He's a really fun guy to be around. He's a really strong actor. And I think he was excited to, I mean, pardon the pun, but to flex his muscles on something else other than the kind of action-heavy stuff he'd been doing. Mm -hmm. And he really is a performer of some great depth. I mean, he has, yeah. he has a lot of levels to what he's able to do. And I think he wanted to show off his Irish accent. He is not, despite what people have been asking me, he is not really Irish. He is Irish by descent, and he has, an, he has dual citizenship in Ireland, but he is from Brooklyn. And so that accent he picked up hanging around his family's bar growing up, and uh, I think he's been looking for a chance to show it off for a long time. Well, you I'm know, ha happy to have the vehicle for him. And it's funny, he did, when I was talking to him, interviewing him on the red carpet opening night, he, you know, he said, yeah, he goes, they hired me without even hearing my Irish accent. <laughs> Uh, he did it for me over Skype. He and I were talking on Skype. He was in South Africa being a pirate. And we had kind of like a, a little standoff, like, am I going to ask him to do it or is he going to offer to do it? And finally he offered, and he, it's great. I mean, oh. uh, he's, he's convinced a lot of people that he's, that he's truly Irish. Yeah. So uh, I know he's very proud of that. And if I didn't know that he was not from Ireland, I would, you know, I would think that he was listening to him. Good. I'm sure he'll be pleased to hear that. But He's yeah. a very smart and thoughtful guy, and uh, the fact that he has 115 abdominal muscles shouldn't get in the way of the fact that he's a very skilled performer. Only 115? Well, that's my personal. I didn't, I didn't do a yeah, full count. I'm telling that's what you. I've been told. You know, he's got as many abdominal muscles as diamonds have facets, let me tell you, with some of the new laser cutting. So I'm now, I'm now using that in our, in our marketing copy going forward. So <laughs> appreciate well, that. Well, David, we are all out of time for the whole show today. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you so much for the support that you have given to our movie. And uh, I hope that your many listeners will uh, not feel uh, inundated by this shock and awe campaign, but I do hope that you'll go out and, and watch this movie that we're very proud to bring to you, and uh, I hope you like it. Look, diamonds are a girl's best friend, and if diamonds, so if diamonds don't do it for you, watching Zach McGowan may. That's right. <laughs> that, so, is, that is correct. Oh, David, thank you so much. Everybody, Imperfections in theaters, on VOD, on iTunes, on digital downloads,
it is there. See it, see it, see it. It is it is worth Thank it. Thank you so much. Twenty four karat gold. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks everybody. Thanks, David. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was David Singer, writer director of Imperfections. That is all the time we have for today. Uh, so next week is going to be a fun show. Janice Rouse is back with us next week. She has another project coming up uh, in Hollywood that everybody is going to hear about and uh, find out how they can see that. And also director Victor Mathau of The Monster Project will be joining us as, as well. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.